Okay, uh, start, I'm going to start off, we're going to watch just a short uh, video clip that actually my son showed to me this week, but in order to understand the clip, if you don't understand this, the Chicago Cubs are the, one of the most uh, hapless, miserable franchises in pro sports because they haven't won a World Series since like 1908, so 100, over 100 years, so if you don't understand the whole sports culture of the Cubs... Haven't won it in over 100 years, and my wife told my son last night they will probably not win it in her or my lifetime, maybe in my son's lifetime. So anyway, just that's that. So let's watch the clip now. It's a it's a commercial. So real, it's unreal. So, uh, so real, it's unreal. I mean, I, I watch this, and I—it's I, weird, but I get—I get kind. Of <clears throat> I don't get emotional because I'm a Cubs fan. I, when I watched it last night, I felt a little emotional because it, it stirs something. I think. For some of us, it stirs something in us of hope for something that we don't feel like is going to happen. And it's so real, it's unreal. And, uh, you know, the guy was tears, if you couldn't see, the tears were going down his face. And then he realized it was all just a game. And when I saw this, actually my son just showed it to me last night. It was planned to speak on what I'm going to speak on anyway, but it just fit. Because what, what I want to talk today about is how, what we see in the Bible of how people lived their lives and how they interacted with the Holy Spirit and what happened seems to be uh, unreal sometimes. And when we read what happened in the Bible and how God worked, how the Holy Spirit worked, it's almost as if it's a game and then we close our Bibles and have to do life the rest of the week. And we can, we, it's almost as if we can pretend or we like to believe that's real but then we realize, oh, maybe it feels so real that it's unreal. And it's that hope of what could be, but you just, it just seems like it's way, way, way out there. Like way far out there. Like even farther out there than the Cubs winning the World Series. So what we've been, the last oh, number of months, I've been talking about what I call Jesus in focus. And trying to get a clear picture of, okay, what is, what, who really is Jesus as opposed to... Who does our culture tell us he is or what have we kind of believed he is? Because I, I think we tend to kind of gravitate toward making Jesus a little more neutral. But for the next few weeks, I also want to do this. I want to do the Holy Spirit in focus. Because just like Jesus, sometimes we start having perceptions of what the Holy Spirit's like. that aren't And those perceptions are not necessarily informed by what the Bible says. Or we've, because it's not our experience, we've watered down what we think the Bible says because it's just too hard to hope for what the Bible says could happen. 
it's almost like a Cubs fan just kind of never getting excited about any win because it's never going to happen anyway. So, so I'm gonna, what we're going to look at is over the next couple of weeks, um, framed from the one passage that Jesus says about the Holy Spirit, and then kind of looking from what he said would happen, and then looking at the book of Acts as to what did happen, and then asking ourselves the question, if this is, is, if, is this the reality we should expect, and have we settled for less, or are we settling for less, and how do we live in the expectation knowing it may never fully come to fruition, but never also kind of resigning ourselves to, yeah, it's just not going to happen. So the one passage I want to look at that Jesus talks about, it, it, this is in Acts 1.8, this is actually part of the last comments that he, that's recorded in Scripture of Jesus saying, apart from the comments he says in Revelation where he's speaking to John in a vision. So Jesus had been, uh, resurrection had already happened. The Bible said he spent 40 days with his disciples after the resurrection, teaching them about the kingdom of God. In other words, this is what the, not about heaven after you die, and we've talked about that, but about life in a conversational relationship with God, teaching them about this is, what it, this is what it can be like. This is what I came to show you. But then he tells them right before he ascends, he says, wait here in Jerusalem, wait in the city until you receive the gift my father promised. And throughout the Gospels, there are a handful of times where Jesus talked about the gift the father would bring, and he referred to the Holy Spirit, uh, the paraclete, the advocate, the, the spirit that he would send that would continue to do the work. And then he said, because you have this gift, you're going to do the same things I've been doing. And they saw the things Jesus had been doing, and he says, because of this gift, you will do the same and greater things that I've been doing. So then he says, in one of his last, again, recorded as he's on earth before he ascends to heaven, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Um, not... Uh, Religious instruction, not uh, inspiration, but power. Um, and he told them, wait. He didn't, you know, typically I think the American way of thinking is if Jesus is wanting to start this movement, we need to, you know, they just go rent out a new big arena. Let's do this. Let's do this. Let's make a big bang happen. And Jesus says, no, wait, because when the time's right for the Father to move and the Spirit to come and the gift that my Father promised you to come, then you're going to receive power. And I just want you to kind of focus on that word power for a second. Um, because my guess is if your experience is like most of our experiences in churches, power is not something we necessarily uh, associate with our experience of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Maybe, maybe uh, excitement or emotion, not, not that all those are bad, but power. And when you look at the book of Acts, uh, the whole aspect of power being a part of it. Then, the next chapter of the book of Acts, go to the next phrase. This is just a simple excerpt from that. You might know this story. They're all in the same room, 120 of them who are followers of Jesus. It says, there was a mighty rushing wind, and then like tongues of fire landed on their foreheads. And it said, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said, you're going to get power. And then it happened on the day of Pentecost. And it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And some unique things happened that particular day. And you can, we, that's not what we're talking about today. But, and then throughout the book of Acts is what these people now were like. That they had received the power Jesus told them they would receive. And they were filled with the Spirit. 
and it becomes a whole new, it, there's a drama in the book of Acts that, again, I think sometimes we read it, and I'll I speak for myself, I read it sometimes, and you kind of skip over or neut- neutralize some of the real uh, supernatural parts because you just kind of think, I don't know, maybe that, can that really still happen? Or do I need to lower my expectations and just think, well, Christianity simply is, I need to live a moral life, do the best I can, and then hold on until Jesus comes back? Or is there more that could be part of our story than what we have and what we experience? And again, I'm not saying we need to kind of go make, make it happen, but what I'm trying to do is make sure our expectations are set where the Bible sets them and not lowered down, not set them where our experience has set them. And I would hope that we always remain hungry for this kind of reality. So what I'm going to do today, I'm going to look at three different aspects of what, what, what these people were like after this happened. And of course, I want us to put ourselves into that story and to see how much of that becomes our norm. Have we, have we set our norm too low, the normal Christian life? Have we set it too low and so we're just satisfied or content with what we have and no longer thinking, I think this is what God says could be, all right? So what, what, what these people, because this incredible change in their life's power and the Holy Spirit being filled with the Spirit and the whole idea of, you know, that the Spirit came in them. And let me just make a comment, too, about if you were here last week and even other weeks with some of the interviews I've done with other leaders. Last week, I interviewed a Muslim, uh, one of the Muslim leaders, other weeks I interviewed a Buddhist monk and uh, a Mormon bishop and a Jewish rabbi. If nothing else, what these interviews have done for me is just confirm some th- something that I hadn't even thought about. But all of those, and I wasn't going to say this was them here because I didn't want to get in an argument with them. Christianity is unique in world religions in believing that there's an outside force presence that actually comes inside of us to bring about change. That we need a power from outside of us to become the forgiving, graceful, merciful, bold people that we know we want to be. I don't know if you caught that, but in other, every interview, it was more about, I just need to do better, or I have it in within me. I can, the Buddhist monk would be, no, you have it in you. You, can, you just need to cultivate what's already in you. The Christian gospel is, you don't have it in you. Ultimately, you have the capacity in you because God made us in his image. But the song we just sang, Oh, How I Need You, I Need You, is legitimately true because what we're saying is we need something outside of us to transform the inside of us so we become exactly what God made us to be. That's the unique aspect of the Christian gospel, that we need some supernatural power outside of us to become the kind of people we say we want to be. Every one of these world religions, they would probably all say we all have the same goal. We want to be kind, merciful, forgiving, generous, not selfish. I don't think any world religions would disagree on what the goal is of kind of people, how to become a good person. But we have significant differences on how you become that because the Christian gospel is we're broken because of our sinful choices even though we're made in the image of God. But because of what Jesus did opening this new living way for the Holy Spirit in the invisible world, somehow we become indwelt with, filled with the Holy Spirit. I can now, because of that, because of that power source and no other way, can I become the kind of forgiving, bold, loving person that I've always dreamed I could be. All right, so that's that's what's happening here in the book of Acts, and I'm just going to look at three aspects of it. Okay, here's here's three things that we can expect, 
or maybe we should reset our expectations in terms of what the life, what a life following Jesus is like. First thing is this, uh, we can expect, you can expect, we can reset our expectations to expect supernatural signs and wonders, invasions from the spiritual world, the Holy Spirit doing things. And, and to illustrate this, I'm going to read one of, the, one of the accounts of the book of Acts, and there's many of them in here, but this is like right after Pentecost. And then um, this is Pete, about Peter and John. If you remember Peter, Peter was like big failure only, what, 40, 45 days prior to this. Denied Jesus, ran away. So these aren't like super saints here. These are people just like you and me who have our share of failures and denying Jesus and tripping and falling, all right? So Peter and John, this is Acts chapter 3. Uh, Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the 3 o'clock prayer service, a regular part of Jewish habit. But now this is post-Pentecost. This is post the Holy Spirit being totally in control of them. As they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. So just a beggar, homeless guy, putting his hand out, wanting something from Peter and John. He probably was there every day thinking these religious Jews going to prayer will at least give me a few tokens of money. Peter and John looked at him intently. And Peter said, look at us. And the lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ, In the, name, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. As he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up, stood on his feet, and began to walk. And I like this next verse. Then walking and leaping and praising God, he went into the temple with them. All the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. When they realized he was a lame beggar they had seen so often at the beautiful gate, they were absolutely astounded. They all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. Absolutely astounded. And they rushed out in amazement. This is not, only, this is not the only account in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is filled with miracles like this. With supernatural signs and wonders, things that could not be explained apart from the power of the Holy Spirit being activated through these ordinary people who, like I said, only seven or eight weeks, or eight weeks earlier were frustrating failures and miserable followers of Jesus. So they weren't like super saints. They were no different than you and I. And uh, so over and over in the book of Acts, it tells us about these supernatural signs and wonders. Now, is that to be the norm in the church today? I don't know exactly the answer to that question, but I do know there seems to be an expectation that these people had that we at least need to make sure our expectation is this is what God can do. Whether he chooses to do it on a regular basis in Bloomington, Indiana, through your or my life, I don't know. I don't understand how God works in that. But let's not ever set the bar so low that we just don't think those things happen anymore. And let's not be satisfied with, well, this is, this is as good as it gets kind of thing. Because over and over in the book of Acts, it seems as if there was supernatural power being exhibited through ordinary people who were simply open to the Holy Spirit's filling in their lives. 
into the prompting of the Holy Spirit as to how to, how to healing. So people were raised from the dead. People were healed. Uh, blind men received sight. Lame men walked. This was the norm of the book of Acts. And again, you can, you can read the book of Acts, and sometimes we kind of gloss over those, and we read them, but we, if we're honest with ourselves, we think, well, I don't, probably not today. It's kind of neat that it happened then. And there are some who would say, well, those things don't happen anymore. And I, and I would say, okay, so God gives us this incredible story about how the early church started and the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he tells us, okay, that's not for you, but you make it work for yourselves anyway. I, I really don't think God would do that. I don't think he does do that. He doesn't start the church with a bang and then pull the plug out and say, do your best. But this power is still available to people who are followers of Jesus. Again, not, we can't call it on demand. We're not magicians. But the power of supernatural change and healing is to be the norm in the kingdom of heaven. Life and earth in the king, living in the kingdom of heaven. So that's the first thing. Second thing, you can expect abnormal boldness and courage. Abnormal being uh, not normal, not weird, could be perceived as weird. But what's interesting in this particular story, so Peter and John, they heal uh, this man, and it causes a ruckus. It causes a little bit of turmoil, and they're called in on the carpet to the principal's office. In other words, the Pharisees and the religious leaders call Peter and John in because they're like, hey, what are you doing? What did you just do? How would you do that? And they call them in. And they questioned them. What did you do? How you? Because they knew who Peter and John were. I mean, they, they knew Peter and John were part of the Jesus entourage seven weeks before. They, they, weren't, they weren't unaware of who these guys were. They had hoped they had pulled the plug on these guys by killing Jesus, and they still were denying any possibility of a resurrection. But they couldn't figure out what... We, we thought we dealt with that problem. And then they, they talked to Peter and John... And they interact with them, and they kind of question them in, like, pretty intense ways. They have all the religious regalia on. And then this is what it says uh, about this question. It says, the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. And the word boldness, if you just do a search of the book of Acts, it shows up all over the place. The boldness the people have, the courage they had, the boldness they had. They, were, they did not fear the opinions of people. They did not even fear the power of, of those leaders to inflict pain or punishment upon them. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the Scriptures. They also recognized them as the men who had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. And so these men who knew the power of the religious council, they knew they had the power to do what they did to Jesus just seven or eight weeks earlier, kill him, crucify him. And they had grown up their whole life, you know, kind of revering and even fearing these religious leaders. But Peter and John go into the council, and it says they were just bold in talking to the council, these religious leaders, about what had happened and what the power of Jesus in their lives had done because he was resurrected. And it said they were amazed when they saw the boldness of these two men. And again, over and over in the book of Acts, boldness. Boldness. I mean, they, there's one passage where, the, where some of the disciples are imprisoned and they're actually flogged. And they're told, 
after they're flogging, don't ever speak in the name of Jesus again. After the flogging. The next sentence. The very next morning they went out into the square again and talked to people about Jesus. I read that and I think, that's boldness. That's boldness. That's courage. And is, is, is that not to be the norm for what we could be like? Having that kind of boldness, not fearing the opinions of others, not fearing their power in our lives, not fearing their financial power, their punitive power, whatever. That kind of boldness and courage, unusual abnormal boldness and courage, is to be the norm for you and me, ordinary people who are filled with the Spirit of Jesus. Again, these weren't super ordinary people. They had been with Jesus, but they weren't like super religious people. Peter and John and Andrew, to some degree, and I'll use a really, uh, real, uh, I'll, I'll use a real common word. To some degree, they were just knuckleheads. They were spiritual knuckleheads. They didn't get it. But yet, because of the Holy Spirit in them and their openness to being filled by the Holy Spirit, uh, there was a boldness about them and a courage about them that defied any kind of logic. And then you and I might think of the times where we kind of cower or don't say what we know we want to say in certain settings because we don't want the opinions of other people to be against us. Or we're not quite sure if we can be as bold because we don't want it perceived as being brash or narrow-minded or whatever. So the abnormal boldness and courage. The last thing I want to talk about this week in terms of what we, what we can expect uh, is supernatural guidance. You've, if you've been on Exodus enough, you know we talk often about um, we believe that God still speaks to us and we believe we can hear and respond to him. And that is to be the norm. It's not the exception. It's not for exceptional people who live in caves and then start hearing voices and seeing dead people or whatever. It's not the exception. It's the norm. And one of my favorite stories from the book of Acts, and again, the book of Acts is full of times where the Spirit tells them this. The Spirit tells Paul not to do this. The Spirit tells Paul to do this. An angel tells someone this. Someone has a vision and they do this. If you, if you took those passages out of the book of Acts, it would just be kind of a somewhat of a boring movie, so to speak. But there's all kinds of supernatural stuff happening that gives them guidance as to what to do next. And one of my favorite stories is the story of Philip one of the original disciples, and he's, he's leaving Jerusalem after persecution was breaking out. And in Acts chapter 8, and again, this is just one of many different examples, it says, as for Philip, this is Acts chapter 8, verses uh, 26, an angel of the Lord said to him, all right, now let's stop for a second. Most people think Luke wrote the book of Acts. Well, how did Luke know it was an angel? Did Philip know it was an angel? Has an angel ever talked to you or me? Maybe. We don't know it. Or is this kind of over-drama and then God says, no, no, you guys have just the black and white version. This is color. Book of Acts is the color version of Christianity, but nobody else gets that. No. He says, an angel talked to Philip and said to him, go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. Pretty specific directions. Go that way. So he started out and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch and great authority over the, uh, the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone down to Jerusalem to worship, and he was now returning. Seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. So the angel says, go down that road. And then Philip notices somebody in a carriage, Ethiopian from the government. And then it says this, the Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk along behind that carriage. What was that like? 
I mean, did, did he hear like a voice in his head? Did he hear an audible voice? Was it just a strong prompting? It could be any of those. We don't know. But it's Luke who wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They knew it was the Holy Spirit that told Philip to do this. They knew it was the Holy Spirit saying, I want you to go over to that chariot and walk next to it. And the next verse, but Philip ran over to the chariot. Because he knew it was God telling him to do this. And like I said, there's other points in the stories in the book of Acts where people were given guidance. Ananias is someone in the book of Acts. There's two different Ananias. This is not the one who lied and was killed. This is a different one. He was told in a vision to go over to this guy's house named Saul, but he knew Saul was the one that was killing Christians. So he has this vision that he's supposed to go to Saul's house. It's almost like telling somebody to, you know, go to the executioner's house. And Ananias has this argument with the Spirit of God saying, you're crazy. Why would I do that? I mean... Can we, can we resend the message, God? Can, you, can we hit refresh and I can hear that again? But very clearly, Ananias knows he is to go basically into the lion's den. So there's boldness. There's supernatural guidance. And because his obedience to the Spirit of God, Saul understands now what had just happened to him when he had been blinded days earlier. And then Saul becomes an incredibly devoted follower of Jesus and a huge part of how we have our Bible today. Because this guy named Ananias, an ordinary average guy, never mentioned before or after in Scripture, hears a message from the Holy Spirit of what he's supposed to do. He does it with fear, but with boldness and courage, because he understood that was from God. And because of that, he changes Paul's world. Because of that, Paul changes the, the known world then. And over and over in Paul's life, there's supernatural guidance, dreams, visions, promptings of the Holy Spirit, angel visitations. So again, can, should we not expect that from our li- as in our lives? Again, or we can conclude that this book, that the Holy Spirit was kind of in hyper mode during this time of history, and then he sat down and took a break from then until now. Or... Does the Holy Spirit, who Jesus sent and said we would get power from the Holy Spirit when he comes upon us, or is this what Jesus wants to expect? Is this how Jesus designed us to live our lives? Now, one more. I'll do this week, and I'll do three or four more next week. Something else we can expect, and this is the part, this is the slide that most of us don't want to show up. Because if we're honest, all of us, supernatural signs and wonders boldness, courage, supernatural guidance, sign me up. That sounds pretty easy in a sense. But hand in hand with those also goes discomfort, opposition, and persecution. Because the story of the book of Acts, all the supernaturalness, the boldness, the power, the the multiplication of the church in numbers, the influence it had on the community. It turned the world literally upside down. That's the part we love about the book of Acts. But it seems as if wherever the Holy Spirit is incredibly active and empowering people, there is always going to be strong discomfort, opposition, and persecution. Discomfort meaning that your life isn't your own anymore. The other Ananias and Sapphira actually were killed 
they were, because they lied to the Holy Spirit, that's pretty, pretty stark that God requires that much of us, that kind of honesty and openness to the Holy Spirit. But then you see the disciples getting flogged. You see John getting his head cut off. Uh, you, see, um, you, see other, you see people getting killed. Persecution and discomfort. So if you say, uh, hey, Jesus said you can have power when the Spirit comes upon you. And if you say, that's what I want. If you're signing up for that, you have to then know you're signing up for this. You can't have one without the other. Because God knows that he will only use somebody who's open to whatever has to happen. He can only use somebody who will give fullness of what they're, what's inside of them. I mean, my, my wife told me the other day the, the word that kept coming to her was the word stripped. That God can't use anybody unless we're willing to be stripped. Um... I remember when we were kids, we used to have to. We this is the, we used to have to repaint our house and our garage. And I have four brothers, and my dad would give us all these paint scrapers. And it was always on hot, muggy days. And he'd say, "Go out and scrape the paint in the garage," and we hated it. But he said, "If you don't scrape it right, the paint won't go on right, and we'll have to do it again and again." So we'd go out there, and you know, for about five minutes, Dad, we're tired, we're done. No, you got to do more. And like you scrape, you scrape, you scrape, you scrape. You have to get more paint off, more paint off. And it'd be like, Dad, I hate this, I hate this. But it's like, no, if you don't do it right, the paint won't stick. And I wonder how much I or you, we want the Holy Spirit to stick and to fill in us, but we don't want the scraping. We don't want the stripping. We don't want... God to take things off of us or sand things off of us that don't need to be there anymore. Um, C.S. Lewis said that if I want to grow wheat in a field, but the field has been seeded with grass, I can have really nice looking grass, but the only way to get wheat is to plow it up and to reseed it. And wanting the power of the Holy Spirit is inviting Jesus to plow up and reseed your own heart. And that's where our fear jumps in because we're like, I think I trust Jesus to do that, but I'm not quite sure, so just in case, I'll hold on to this part of my land. He won't plow that. My understanding of how I understand Scripture is Jesus won't come in and plow if he can't have the whole field. So if there's part of your field that you say, Jesus, you can't plow that. You can have all these acres, but not this acre. Jesus is not interested in having part of your field farm field plowed under. He wants it all. He wants everything stripped. So here's the, here's the thing I'll leave with today, the next slide. If you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you have to be emptied first. You have to be emptied before you can be filled. Because we want, and again, I'm speaking for myself, and I think I speak for a lot of us, we all want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm, you know, you want to be filled, but in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit, whatever is in the vessel that's not of God, has to be poured out. And that's where we get clutchy, panicky. Well, what if, what if, what if, what if? But I, I, I need that in my life, or I need this attitude. I need this kind of income. I need this. I need this. I need these people. I need this habit, because that's where I'm finding life, because I'm not sure if God's giving me the life I wanted. So just in case I need, hold on to that. 
But that's where, again, are you willing to hand over your vessel to Jesus and have him pour out whatever is in there so he can fill out what he says he wants to fill in there, which was way beyond any life you ever imagined. I mean, he says that he, Jesus used the word power. And you see over and over in the book of Acts that there was power exhibited in these people's lives. So my challenge is simply this. Will you at least have a conversation with Jesus this week with the Holy Spirit? And is there any part of your life that needs to be emptied? Is there any part of your life that needs to be stripped? Is there any part of your life that needs to be plowed? Not because God loves to cause pain, but because God loves to pour in power. And if you want to be filled, then everything that doesn't belong there has to go. And set your expectation for what a spirit-filled life that God intends for us can be like. We may never get there this side of heaven, but let's not lower the expectation to meet our experience. Because that's what we often do. Well, because I don't want to be, it's kind of like back to the Cubs. I don't want to be disappointed, so I just know they won't win the World Series again, ever, in my lifetime, in, the, in anybody's lifetime, ever. So if I, don't, if I set the expectation that low, I'll never be disappointed. I'll never have disappointment. No, set it high. Set it exactly where the Bible sets it, where Jesus himself sets it, and don't ever put the gauge back down again. Because that's what Jesus says we can have in his timing, in his way, in his power. So, let's pray. Jesus, um, we believe you when you said we could do greater things than what you've done. We believe you when you said there is power from on high that God can give us. We believe that with our heads. But there's often a disconnect in our hearts where we're not quite sure even how it happens, what's supposed to happen. And if truth be known, there's always a, a, a pit of fear in each one of us that are not quite sure if we even want that to happen because we have a sense that we may lose the control of our life that we think we desperately need. So God, I, our, my prayer for all of us is that we would trust you. Trust your goodness trust your provision for us, that you will take care of us, and trust that we can trust you, you that if we place ourselves fully in your hands and put every acre of our hearts under your plow, that we can trust that we will become the kind of people we've always hungered and thirsted and dreamed we could be. So God, forgive us for lowering our expectations. Forgive us for watering down uh, standards of what we believe you said our life could be like and just keep us hungry and as we sang earlier keep us needing you not in pitiful desperation but in a strong honest kind of desperation that we know apart from you in our lives we cannot be the fully alive loving courageous joyful people that we know you said we can be that's the kind of people we want to be and so do whatever you need to do, Jesus, to make us those kind of people. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we finish every Sunday with uh, communion. And again, when Jesus said, this is, my, this is the night before he was betrayed, this is my body, this is my blood is given for you, uh, do this and remember me, remember me, remember me.